Um, I would love us as a church family this morning just to really lift uh, a member of our family up in prayer. So Annette Dunn, many of you know um, her mum, Sarah Mawinney, comes here whenever she's well enough. Her health isn't too good. But uh, in the middle of the night, she took a heart attack last night. Um, so she is currently in the Royal. So um, I've been in touch with Annette and she just loved the idea of her church family praying over her mum this morning. So if you could join me in doing that, that would be super. Yes, Father, we lift this whole family up to you right now. And Holy Spirit, we pray that uh, your presence would be resting so heavily and so beautifully and powerfully upon all of them in this um, really worrying time. And Jesus, thank you for Sarah. Thank you for who she is. And Lord, you know her and you love her. And Jesus, we pray that um, just wherever she is right this second, I pray that she would be aware of the holiness of your presence, that that peace that passes understanding that we read about, Father, I pray that she would know that resting upon her right now. And Jesus, we pray for your healing power um, to really come upon her body. And Father, just as the, the doctors and nurses are working with her, Lord, we pray for wisdom. Um, Jesus, we pray for freedom from pain for Sarah. Um, and Lord, we just pray for Annette and Johnny and the wider family circle as they support her. And um, Lord, just I pray that, that they would know you so close in this time as well. We just really pray and trust your presence around this whole family in Jesus' name. Amen. And on to a very practical thing. We have a shortage of cups this morning. So if you could take one cup and kind of keep it with you instead of taking a couple this morning, then that would be great. All right. And Chris. Oh, don't you turn up again? Sorry, just one more thing. Sorry, I'm hijacking you with here, Chris, but I'm sure you'll be fine about that. Um, <laughs> I just, I was reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia with, with one of our wee ones at home, and this really um, just jumped off the page of me. I'm a wee bit of a nerd about this kind of thing, because I get so excited when something connects, you know, and the allegory in these books is so beautiful, but I'm going to give you a few spoilers here if you haven't read it yet. So um, the, the three main characters are two kids, Polly and Diggory, and, and Diggory's uncle, Uncle Andrew, and Uncle Andrew's a wee bit wacko, like he's, um, he's a magician. And a very long story cut short, um, Uncle Andrew tricks the kids into going to this land that they've never been to before, and they see the creation of Narnia. And it is stunning. And the lion speaks, he sings a song, and, and creatures just come up from the earth, and light comes, and it is so beautiful. But there's a part in the story um, where Aslan speaks to the animals. He puts his nose to their nose, and he sets them apart. And they're not like the other animals. And I felt this morning that that point was just so critical to us as we look at the early church and how they were set apart and, um, and what that means for us. But there's this other bit, and I was so excited last night, and I'm really, I'm sorry, I'm a real nerd about this, but um, I read it, and I wanted to read it to you because I feel like it could stir up our hearts this morning as Chris comes. It says, um, Uncle, so the context of it is Uncle Andrew um, realizes that when you plant something in this new land of Narnia, it grows. So they plant a toffee and a toffee tree grows, but they plant um, a piece of metal from a lamppost and a lamppost grows. Isn't that, isn't that just wonderful? I just love that. So um, 
um, Aslan is speaking to the kids and he's revealing more of himself to the children, but Uncle Andrew is just petrified of Aslan. And it, and it says, um, Aslan says, this world is bursting with life for these few days because the song with which I called it into life still hangs in the air and it rumbles in the ground. It will not be so for long, but I cannot tell that to this old sinner, Uncle Andrew, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. So, Heavenly Father, this morning, your word is going to do us good. You have called us out. You have set us apart. And I pray a supernatural anointing on Chris that as he speaks, it will be words directly from the throne room of heaven that we know in our hearts will do us good. Help us to have ears to hear your living word today. In Jesus' name, amen. This switched on. All right. Johnny was wanting to know where I got my haircut. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they'll never go there. <coughs> He's wanting to know the password of my laptop, actually, but <coughs> there you go. <coughs> so, lovely to speak to you this morning, and we are sort of just on the second week of a series called Unfolding the Great Commission, and it's the series that's going to take us quite a while. Uh, I've seen the outline for the next number of months from Alan, and it's definitely going to take us a while. Uh, but it's going to be worth it because, uh, as we'll see as we go through this, the story of what uh, God did in and through uh, Acts really is a story which continues to us and to this day uh, and to what we're called to do now. Um, but when we read Acts, uh, we see it very often as a collection of stories. Uh, and even the title of it, Acts, you know, we think about an act or a scene. So we think about oh, there's this act, you know, and it goes on and these different stories and different people. Uh, it wasn't originally called that. Um, nobody's 100% sure what it was called, but sometimes the, the title of things can um, really, I suppose, confuse us or take away from the original meaning. Uh, and if we're not careful, we'll just see it as snapshots um, of, of different stories. Uh, but when somebody, somebody comes to tell you a story of, of their life, they don't go through most of the time, thankfully, although I was at a wedding that it did feel like the, when the father of the bride stood up, he went through her entire life. Um, and after an hour, it was getting pretty serious. But um, when you're telling your story, you tend to tell little bits and pieces, don't you? You tell highlights or things that, that maybe defined you at a particular moment or shaped them what you did in the future. Um, and, and you see, you provide these little glimpses in to the story, but it's your story, 
and it's a continuation of your story so that people can build a picture up of who you are and what you're about. And so, in a lot of ways, this story is one continued story rather than being these snapshots of different stories and different people. So what we want to do, if we're ready, is we're going to, going to watch a little video until 2 minutes and 46 seconds, and then we're going to turn it off. You're not going to see it all, but um, it's only because I'd rather you listen to me. Um, so you can go home and you can watch the rest of this video, which will really help you to kind of understand a lot about Acts. And I just want to say this as well. Just because something is an animation doesn't mean it's for children. Great. So in that little animation, you got an idea of, of the story of the narrative. And what we see is that, that Luke, who is writing, um, I think we have these, these words as well from Acts chapter 1. This is volume 2 of a two-volume set. 
uh, where the story continues. And so uh, Luke, when he's writing at the start of Acts, says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and so what we get here is, is this idea that, that we're on, on volume two when we get into Acts. And so we see this all the time, you know, Hollywood movies and stuff like that. Um, or maybe if you watch a series on Netflix, and so from one episode to the next, there'll always be this little recap. Um, and sometimes if you're really unfortunate, at the start of an episode, there'll be a recap, and at the end of the episode, there'll be like a looking forward, and so you end up thinking, what did I actually watch? Because, we, you know, we heard back, and then we hear forwards. But in, in Luke, he's kind of saying, to, when he's writing Acts, he's saying, my, my former letter, volume one, is connected to volume two. And imagine if you were Theophilus, and you had read the Gospel of Luke, and then you knew <coughs> that the sequel was coming out. And so some of you that are book readers, maybe Harry Potter or something else that was in a, a sequence or a series, you, you thought, I can't wait until the next volume comes out and, and I'm going to find out what happened. And so when I was a kid, I used to read the Dandy magazine, their comic. Some of you might have been Beano readers, but I was with the Dandy, with Desperate Dan. Um, and so every week on a Thursday morning, I'd walk down to the newsagent and I'd get the magazine because I wanted to find out the next part in the story. Now, when I opened it up, I didn't get like a full details and backstory of the characters every time because it was assumed, it was assumed that you knew who the people were, uh, a, bit, a bit about their personality and their character, uh, you knew a bit of their history, what they were likely to do in any given situation. So it then becomes very easy when you're into sequels to write a story because all the hard work of who these people are, what they do, how they operate was written in volume one. And so what I would like to even encourage you to do is as we go through Acts, is think, well, this is volume two. Let's go and read volume one and let volume one, which is the gospel of Luke or all the gospels really, inform our thinking. But also there are patterns, there are structures in Luke. The way Luke writes his gospel helps us to see a continuation in the gospel of Acts. Um, and actually then when we start to really read this, when we here today start to read this, and actually as Theophilus read this, um, the book of Acts, what he would have realized was that um, it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There must have been a point as Theophilus was reading the book of Acts that he saw himself in the story. Maybe he was based in Rome, we're not quite sure where he was, but the gospel of, or the book of Acts takes us from the church in its birth in Jerusalem right through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth, in their thinking, would have been Rome, the Roman world, because to, to actually be in Rome is to give you influence right across to the ends of the earth because the Roman Empire stretched that far. 
But Theophilus must have read this, and at some point along the story, he probably, because he, it seems to be that he knew Luke, and Luke is in the story several times. He maybe knew other people, other characters in the story, and so he sees himself. But what I would like us to think about is, if this story unfolded in that direction, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, here we are at the ends of the earth. We are also attached, connected to this story. And, um, you know, actually back a number of hundreds of years ago, when people got to Ireland, they literally thought, this is the end. This is the end of the earth. When you get past here, there's just sea, there's nothing else. And so we, we are, in some ways, at the very much the ends of the earth. Uh, and so we see that this story, it's a bit like this. It's a bit like a tree, a family tree. It has a very small beginning. In fact, the beginning started with a seed, like all trees do. This seed was buried as a person of Jesus, but then it started to grow. And we see that this story branches out through 2,000 years of history. It reaches every tribe and tongue. We're blessed to know um, and have its origin intact, but you and I are somewhere in the family tree, part of the story. And so in a way, people go and they research their genealogy and they look back at their history and they find out the stories of who they are and where they came from. We don't feel really a huge need to do that because we're all from Ireland, you know, or all from England or wherever we're from. But, you know, if you're, if you're in a kind of a newer country like America that only has a couple of hundred years of history or Australia, they spend so much time and energy thinking, well, where did we come from? What's our story? What's our narrative? Where do we find ourselves or place ourselves in the world? And so what I would like to say to you is that we place ourselves in this story, in Acts, because when the church started, the good news stopped being just for the Jewish nation. If you like, if this is a tree, the roots are the Jewish nation, the, the roots of the Old Testament, and the story starts in, in its roots. But, but when, as it breaks out, like a tree breaking out um, above the ground, that's the point at which we are, and we find ourselves a branch or a bud as part of this story too. And so as we go along this story, I would like us to think, where am I in the story? I'm connected with this. I'm part of this same big tree this genealogy of what God has been doing throughout the ages. And then, um, as the little video was saying, there is this common person in Luke and Acts um, that runs right through the theme, and this is obviously the person of Jesus. And so we, we connect our thoughts and we realize Jesus walked on the earth um, as a man in Luke, and the disciples, the apostles, were around him and learned everything from him. Uh, then in in Acts, we see him, and then he goes, but we know that the Spirit comes, and it is the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit reflects and reveals the person of Jesus. That is his primary um, role. In the same way that Jesus said that he came to reveal the Father, the, the Spirit comes to reveal the Son. Um, and so the continuation of Jesus is constant throughout. In fact, you know, um, Luke makes it very specific when he said, you know, my first volume I wrote about all that Jesus began to say and do the implication that Jesus continued to say and do things throughout the whole of the book of Acts. Um, and so we have to adjust our focus slightly and we have to realize that actually, 
This is the story of Jesus in the person of the Spirit residing in believers. That's the central, he is the central character of Acts. So in a way, very often what we need to do when we're reading Acts is we're looking for Jesus. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing? How is Jesus moving? So when Jesus you know, died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that was in terms of his decisive victory over sin. But his mission was far from over. And in fact, he passes over the baton and he says to his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples. I've made you in disciples, now you go and make disciples. Um, but they're told to wait. As we know, they're told to wait because the Spirit is coming. And what Luke does very cleverly is he shows us the necessity of the person of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. And so right throughout, he kind of weaves this, this thing, um, and particularly at the start of the Gospel, he sets us up for an understanding that everything Jesus said, everything that he did, was in cooperation with the Spirit. And so here are some key examples. So before Jesus is even born, and Luke records in 135, the angel answered, this is to Mary, <coughs> the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. <coughs> and then Luke 3.16, so if you're ever in a quiz and they, and they say, do you know what John 3.16 is? And you go, yep, and then they say, do you know what Luke 3.16 is? Now you do. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, I will he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then so again, um, when Jesus is baptized, we read that the Holy Spirit descended on him uh, on bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, you're my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then just after that, we see that in Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by, by the Spirit into the wilderness in which he's tempted for 40 days. And then at, um, the end, later on in Luke, we read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And so Luke paints this picture. It's like at every point along the way and as Jesus enters his public ministry, he does that through the Spirit, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. So Luke, having done that, gets to the start of Acts, and the Holy Spirit hasn't really been mentioned yet. So then we know what happens, and this is where we have the need for Pentecost. And, and so when the Holy Spirit falls at, uh, at the start of Acts, and, and tongues of fire and wind... Holy Spirit moves in power, and people don't know what's going on. Everyone can hear, as Alan was telling us last week, everybody can hear uh, the good news being preached in their own tongue. People say they're drunk, but then Peter stands up and he says, no, no, it's actually like what the prophet Joel said in Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And he says, now this is the time in which the spirit is poured out. And the spirit is then the ignition of the early church. This is the start of the early church, <clears throat> literally ignited with fire 
The church starts where they were told to wait by Jesus until the Spirit came. They're now literally thrust out into the environment around them and everything changes because they are changed. And in particular, this guy, this is a little picture of Peter, is changed. And I think it's really good to look at Peter because obviously we have quite a lot of detail about Peter in the Gospel of Luke and we have quite a lot of detail about Peter in the book of Acts and that is no coincidence. When Peter stood on the shore with Jesus after he had denied him three times and then being reinstated, Jesus had died and rose again and Peter is kind of going like, am I even in? You know, am I one of the apostles? And, and Jesus is like, well, you're going to build my church. He was a broken man. He knew the truth, and yet he was still paralyzed. He had looked back at his life and thought, I denied Jesus three times. How can I do anything for him? But Jesus reinstates him. And uh, I really like Peter. I really, really do, because he has foot and mouth disease. And sometimes I suffer from that too. Uh, so you know that the... the Apostle John, in his own book, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I would say that Peter was the disciple who said what everybody else was thinking. Um, and so every time uh, there's something going on in, in the Gospel of Luke, Peter opens his mouth wide, says whatever is going through his mind. Uh, and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not, you know. Jesus said, you're all going to you know, leave me. And Peter's like, I will never leave you. And Jesus is like, well, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I won't. Um, it's like a bit like a child. Um, you know, when the transfiguration happened, that Jesus and, is up on the mountain and Elijah and Moses appear and it's this amazing moment, Peter's like, come on, we'll build wee houses. So we'll build wee houses and you just can all live in them. And, and actually, I love this because as he was speaking, God spoke from heaven, like just interrupted him, Peter, shh. You're not getting this. Shh. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him, is what he says at that point. But again, you know, when, when uh, the disciples were trying to work out who Jesus was, you know, Peter was the one that says, you are the Christ. And uh, it, even at, when Peter was reinstated, after he denied Jesus three times, and Jesus was like, yeah, Peter, come on. And then John is like in the background there, and Peter's like, well, what are we going to do with John? What are you going to do with John? And Jesus is like, don't you worry about John, Peter. Just you have enough to worry about worrying about yourself. And so I look at this person who denied Jesus three times, who ran away, he was a coward, he opened his mouth at the wrong times and the wrong occasions. And then in Acts, we see a different Peter. And the only difference is that the spirit of the living God has fallen upon him. And so when he stands up and he gives that speech to everyone around him about who Jesus was and how they need to repent, what we see is a very different person, a spirit-filled, a spirit-empowered person, somebody who has been changed and transformed. 3,000 people become Christians. Peter goes from just being a mouthpiece to being God's mouthpiece. God takes him as he is and all his skills and abilities, all his advantages and disadvantages, the Spirit breathes on him and we see that he is transformed. 
So he raised his voice. This is what he said at, at the end. Um, or say at the start, he says, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And he then goes on to detail who Jesus is. But what's interesting about that is that the very same people that he ran away from, the very same people that he denied Jesus to, are the, the people that he's now speaking to with boldness. And the consequence of Peter standing up and doing that leads to this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I mean, that's an amazing, extravagant claim. It's actually probably one which is blasphemy. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all on whom the Lord our God will call. And then it goes on to say 3,000 were um, saved at that time. And so the Holy Spirit draws these people together, these apostles who were previously hiding in an upper room and does something amazing with them in one day. And so the problem with this is that there used to be 120 of them and they were in an upper room. And now they've got 3,120, roughly. And they're faced with a, a situation which is beyond their comfort zone and beyond uh, their experience. And so what do these men do? And this is again is where we need to provide a connection between Acts and Luke, is that they can do, do only what they know and what they've seen before. And so they replicate what they've seen in the person of Jesus because at the end of the day, they've come from um, a Jewish background. They have followed a rabbi. And the purpose of following a rabbi is to be like him. To follow him so closely is to know his ways, to know his teachings. And you know, in the Bible, we get that word yoke his yoke, his teachings, and to follow him in every way possible. And so over a period of time, they would have picked lots of things up about who Jesus was, how he interacted with people, what he taught, how he, he gripped people, how he did lots of different things. And it's amazing the more time you, you spend with someone, the more things you pick up about them. And we do this too, just in, in different aspects of our lives. So... Um, Probably a lot of you do this. When you get a new book, you open it up, and what's the first thing you do? What's the first thing you do when you open up a new book? I'm going to go, I heard smell it, right? That's because my wife knows my family. You don't read it. You give it a good, oh, yeah. You smell the new book. And so my kids do that, and, but Debbie doesn't. She's like, why are our children smelling every new book? I'm like, because that's what we do. They've learned that from their dad. It's like you pick up a new book, you open it, you smell it, you go, yeah, that's a really good. And some books don't smell as good, you know what I mean? So lots of you know this too. And you picked it up, but where did you pick it up from? Picked it up from our parents or from other people around us. We were discipled in the ways of smelling a new book. We were, whether you realize it or not. Okay, and, and so we, we, we conform to the ways. And so... I think I told this story a while ago, but anyway. Um, so I knew this guy, and he used to have this walk, and it was kind of like this kind of walk. 
And he was only a kid, you know, like maybe five or six years old. And, and um, then somebody realized that he walked like his dad. The problem was his dad needed two hip replacements, and so he walked <laughs> like that because he was on two bad hips. But his son didn't know. So his son was like, that's the way, you know, I want to be like my dad, and so I'm going to get that walk down. And so for these disciples who had followed Jesus for three and a half years, they were close to his ways. I would suggest that they probably had similar mannerisms to Jesus. They, may, they maybe uh, did certain things, but, but they patterned themselves and their lives in every way after Jesus. And so we see this. And, and like, what are we going to do? 3,000 people have become Christians. Oh, I know. We'll do what we always do. We'll devote ourselves to teaching. And so in this case, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because they were now the teachers. Jesus had gone to the fellowship, so actually being together, living together, sharing our lives and, and our stuff and our things, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers together, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so the essence of this very famous passage is we don't have a clue what to do, but thank goodness Jesus showed us some stuff, so we'll just replicate that. You know, and I would say if Jesus showed you some stuff, showed you how to live, how to interact, how to share your lives and share your things, how to devote yourselves to teaching and to prayer, that that's a pretty good thing to do. So 2,000 years later, for all our buildings and for everything else that we do, the church, we do a bit of teaching, do a bit of prayer. We hopefully share ourselves and our lives together in, in a lot of ways, and, and we pray for the sick and, and things like that, and we give financially. We kind of do a lot of this, this stuff because this is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is marked out for us. And Peter probably learned, there's a great story um, at the start of the Gospels where Peter's mother-in-law gets healed, right? It's the first time when we have Jesus praying for a lot, a lot of people. And uh, Peter's mother-in-law gets healed, and then everybody hears that Jesus can heal, and they all rock up at Peter's um, mother-in-law's house, and Jesus prays for them all, and there's loads of them healed. And then the next day, there's a crowd there, and they're all looking for Jesus, and he's gone. And they find him up the mountainside praying, and they go up to him and say, Jesus, it's brilliant, it's amazing, we've got a big crowd together, loads and loads of people here, you come down, we wondered where you were, let's pray for them more, let's build this big thing, a big show. And Jesus said to them, no, I've got other things to do. And he was led by the Father, and so they leave this group of people, and away they go, and they, they travel in Jesus' itinerant ministry. And so um, Peter probably would have learned from experiences like that to realize it's not about building the big thing. He had learned the ways of Jesus, and he decided that those would be the things that were worth replicating. And they had come from a group of 12. And so 
when we see that they, they met together in each other's homes, then we know it was a small, they had a small group system in place. Let's meet together in people's homes, let's share life, let's share a meal, you know, let's take communion, let's remember Jesus. So we'll do that. Let's make sure we do that because this is the way that Jesus taught us. Let's replicate that. Share our lives together and we'll do the temple courts thing. You know, we'll meet together in a big group and we'll talk about things. But then we'll go out and we'll share Jesus. People come to faith. People get healed. This it becomes a normal pattern of the church. And the challenge for us is that if we're going to devote ourselves to Jesus and to his ways, we've got to recognize that nothing has really changed. We're still called to this way. We're still called to walk in the way of Jesus and his disciples, that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the plan for taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth was little groups of people meeting together, sharing life, sharing stories, teaching the ways of Jesus and seeking to replicate that. Because the ultimate goal for somebody who's making disciples is to get the people they're discipling to get to the point where they make disciples. And when that happens, nothing's ever going to stop it. When disciples make disciples, make disciples, make disciples, nothing can ever stop that. And that is what the Spirit wanted to do. One little challenge <clears throat> that I want to throw out to us when we think about this stuff this morning is that sometimes in church, um, we get a bit mi mixed up in this. And so the apostles' teaching, you know, the teaching of, of the Old Testament and what, what, how Jesus is revealed through the Old Testament and how he fulfills Old Testament laws and, and prophecies, the teachings of Jesus as they would have known them, they become the things that um, they all teach and share. These things are radical, transformational pieces of information. But what we do in Christian circles is we take information, and information has no power in itself. So <clears throat> the Bible has information in it. It has words in it. One of the issues that we have about the Bible is, apart from the dictionary, there's very few things that are printed with two columns, and so we tend to think of it as like a, some kind of reference book. But it has information in it. And what happens with information is absolutely nothing until it becomes knowledge. Knowledge is information taken by you and understood. And so um, we take that knowledge. We are the interface that changes it into knowledge. It was information, it's now knowledge. There's some stuff in that book that's information. I know what that stuff means. That's knowledge, okay? Wisdom is the next step. So we go from information to knowledge, then we go from knowledge to wisdom. Wisdom is to take that knowledge <coughs> and actually apply it make sense of it in a way that it has an output in our lives. And so we're called then to move to a place of wisdom where we actually apply these things. And do you know what the crazy thing is that we don't always get to the step of wisdom when it comes to church? In fact, sometimes we think that knowledge is the destination. What I know now, I didn't know. Therefore, that's amazing. And so um, a number of years ago, there was a guy over from America to speak at a church conference I was at. His name's Erwin McManus, and he's a church called Mosaic in Los Angeles. And he, he said something that really st stuck with me. He said, you know, 
Christians have the de developed the ability to feel challenged by a sermon, to feel good about being challenged by the sermon, and yet do nothing, believing almost that the feeling of being challenged was the criteria that that was a good Sunday service. You know, you know when people have that conversation, oh, it was a good service today. Oh, I felt really challenged, really challenged. Whoa, just felt really challenged by that. Stirred up. Yes, yeah, so did I. Brilliant. See you next week. And that's it. You know, the goal of church is not to feel stirred up and challenged and think, well, that's how you know what is a good sermon. The goal is to hear the word, to take on the information, to make it into knowledge, and then to live out the wisdom of living it out in our lives. That's what we're called to do. Um, <clears throat> But sometimes you don't get it. Like uh, years ago, uh, Debbie and I went to hear a guy called Tony Campolo uh, speaking. And so we lived in Belfast at the time, and he was speaking in Bangor. And so we drove to Bangor in this really nice middle-class church. And Tony Campolo, for about an hour, ripped um, our modern Christianity to shreds, shall we say. I think, unfortunately, they picked him up at Belfast City Airport, and somebody had driven him from Belfast City Airport to Bangor. And on the way, you happen to go through Cultural and Hollywood. And if you know those two areas, you know there's not a small house between them. Um, that's an exaggeration. But there's quite a lot of big ones. <coughs> so he arrived there, and he, and he said, why have you got all big houses? What are all the big houses for? Like, do you just need big houses to fill them full of stuff? And then when you fill your house full of stuff, you go and get a bigger house because you've got no room for stuff anymore, so you need a bigger house, so you fill it uh, full of more stuff. And, and then he started to talk about the starving children of Haiti. And everybody really felt challenged as he talked about the fact that they had nothing. And at the end, he was given an ovation. An ovation. Like people applauded and cheered and woohoo! And you just saw the look on his face, which is like, because what he was seeing was people that were just being, yes, we've been really challenged and made to feel guilty. We love feeling guilty Christians, don't we? Um, and that's not the point of it. The point is this, that Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he came to give us life and life in all of its fullness, but he wasn't content just with that. He gave us his spirit, the spirit of the living God within us to bring change and transformation. And he taught his disciples for three and a half years to walk in his ways to die to self, but to live to Christ. And he took these broken people, these, these 12 disciples, people like Peter and James and John and, and the rest of them, former tax collectors and sinners, people that would have been viewed unclean, says, you guys are my number one. You're my A-team for changing the world. And it brings us just to this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. There's a little picture of a butterfly, this idea of metamorphosis. If Jesus died so that we not just get into heaven, but become acceptable dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, and therefore have the opportunity to be metamorphosized, to be transformed completely, should we not try and live like that is the case? We take actually the story of the early church and really go, what does it mean to really follow in the ways of Jesus? 
is if we truly follow in the ways of Jesus, if we devote ourselves to him, to his teachings, to his pattern of life, we will be changed and we'll be transformed. Why? Because the, the purpose of being a disciple is to be like him, to be like him. And when we look at Jesus, when we read the Gospel of Luke or any of the other Gospels, they're not kind of go, do you know what? I would love to just actually, actually be like Jesus. To walk through this world and not really care what other people think. To know and have full security in who I am, why I'm here, what I'm good at and what I'm not. To love other people, to receive love, to be in relationship with other people, even though that's difficult at times. To follow in the way and the pattern of Jesus also makes us someone who other people want to be around and to be like. Because that's what we're called to be. It's these disciples, these people, who are, there's something attractional about them. As they did those things that we read about in Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47, it says, and, and daily numbers are being added to them. Daily people were going, what's up with you guys? You're changed and transformed. Now, they weren't invited into something that was going to be really, really easy. In fact, the very opposite, because um, most of them were Jews at the time. A lot of them would have faced real difficulties. They would have needed the teachings of Jesus because they would have found themselves in situations where they've been rejected by their family, maybe disinherited, maybe threatened with violence. They had um, been placed outside of their culture and their norm into this little cult off the side that claimed that the Messiah had come and everybody else thought that he hadn't. They would have gone through difficult times, persecution of all sorts and types. And the disciples would have went, well, you know, Jesus said this one time, you know, blessed are you when you're persecuted because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, if somebody hits you on, on one cheek, turn the other. They would, all they would have said, like, here, um, I don't really know how to deal with your situation, but here's what Jesus said. And because it's the words of Jesus, it makes sense. And lives are transformed. And so we are called wonderfully into this purpose. 2,000 years on, our genealogy, our family tree goes back to these moments in Acts. This is where we find out, we go back to the root of who we are, why we're here, how we're called to live, and what it should look like. And so what I would love for us to do today as the band come up, um, is just invite the Holy Spirit in stir us up again with an excitement and an enthusiasm for, for Jesus and his ways. To tune in to the call of discipleship, which is actually the call to be like Jesus. Let us replicate ourselves uh, in his form. Let's look to him and think, I want to be like that, and believe that because the spirit of the living God is within us, we can actually do that. And then we get wrapped up in that, that as God changes us, we want to see other people change. We want to bring them into the story. We want to bring them into the family and say, you can be like this too. You can know who you are, why you're here, what life is all about. And we're calling people into that because if it's truly Jesus-centered and Jesus-filled, then it has to also be attractional. People have to look at it and go, something about you. There's something about what God's doing in your life. There's something about your story, which is full of mess and confusion and difficulty, but I can see that you're being changed and transformed. It's authentic. Um, so let's stand up and, and worship, and then we'll just have a chance to respond.